It seems kind of hopeless right now, but you're going to figure this out. This is pretty debilitating. I'm able to turn my pain into purpose. There are people out in the world that do understand what you're going through. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Courtney about her undiagnosed illness. About two years ago, Courtney started having hemifacial spasms while at work, and according to the mayoclinic.org, hemifacial spasm is a nervous system disorder in which the muscles on one side of your face twitch involuntarily. Courtney was working as a pharmacist in a hospital, so she was able to run down to the ER and talk to a friend who worked there who was very concerned about the symptoms she was presenting. Unfortunately, her symptoms started to spiral out of control, and these uncontrollable movements started to spread down her face to her arm, her shoulder, and her ribcage. And her symptoms started to multiply, including bouts of confusion, overwhelming fatigue, and heart rate issues. Doctors have found evidence of many different things, but nothing that has been conclusive enough to point to a specific diagnosis. For example, they've found lesions on her spine, low levels of MS and lupus antibodies in her spinal fluid, genetic testing that's shown she is a carrier for a few different diseases, and mysteriously high levels of porphyria compounds in her urine. And she'll talk us through this whole journey today. I often find similarities between myself and my journey with the guests that appear here on the show, but this one was spooky. This one, there was a lot of really intense similarities, most specifically the fact that up until recently, I've had no idea what my chronic illness might be, and at one point, I went down the rabbit hole of thinking that I might have Wilson's disease. I had low copper levels and low ceruloplasmin. And my doctors weren't sure if my copper levels were too high or too low, so we spent about a year examining whether or not I might have Wilson's disease, which is a genetic condition that causes a buildup of copper in your body. And Courtney went through the exact same thing. There were so many moments throughout this interview where I was completely stunned by how similar some moments in our journeys have been. It really brought back a lot of the medical trauma that I have experienced over the years but was also so comforting to hear someone else say words that I never thought I'd hear another human being say. Things that I've said myself many, many times about my own experience. And that's the beauty of this show. I hope to give that opportunity to as many people as possible in the world who feel like they are going through something alone, the opportunity to hear from someone else living through something similar. It can be so profoundly validating to know that we aren't alone in this journey. I felt such a kinship with Courtney during this interview, discussing the similar situations that we've lived through, and just having that incredible feeling of, wow, I'm not alone. There's someone else who has experienced something very similar to me. She did such a fantastic job of describing what it's like to be stuck without a diagnosis. She talks about being a hot potato patient, where as soon as she lands in the lap of a doctor or specialist, They immediately want to get rid of this hot potato and throw her to the next specialist. And no one is willing to sit with this hot potato and really figure out why is this thing hot and help her get to the bottom of her diagnostic experience. She also talks about the frustrations of not being listened to and the concept of having so many doctors on your chart that when you go to a new doctor, they just assume that you are a problem patient and don't want to deal with you. All of this being seen through the lens of a pharmacist who has a deep understanding of the biological process of the body, trying to figure out her own journey and recognizing that the difficulty level of that is so high that Courtney wonders how does anyone who isn't a medical professional of some kind get through this and find a diagnosis. During this interview, Courtney actually had a small flare-up. I always conduct my interviews over Zoom, and I could see that her face started spasming, and suddenly she couldn't speak. 
She and I discussed this after recording, and we both decided that it was important to leave this in the episode. It was a minor flare-up that only lasted for a few seconds, so we were able to continue recording. She shared with me after the fact that sometimes these episodes get so much more extreme, but we both felt like it was important to include it since it illustrates a tiny piece of what she's been living through. This episode is actually Courtney's chronic illness coming out party. She told me that she's actually never really shared anything about her chronic illness on social media before, and as far as a lot of her friends are concerned, she just stopped posting on Instagram without any explanation as to why. And this is another thing that I just totally, totally related to. For years, my chronic illness was suffered through in silence. It was not something that I posted about publicly. The first time I ever really did so was when I made an episode of my sci-fi podcast called uh, Maybe He's Born With It, Maybe It's Lyme Disease, (laughs) a two-part episode where I kind of came clean with my audience about you know, what I was living through. Uh, And the response from that was so overwhelming that it really sort of influenced my decision to create this podcast a few years later. But crossing that bridge of telling your friends and family that you are sick makes it real in a way that is really scary. So I was really honored that Courtney chose this platform to speak about this publicly for the first time and to fill in not just this community here on the podcast, but her own community about what it is that she's been living through. So it's a really, really stunning conversation. I love this episode. I I enjoyed this conversation so much. So I'm thrilled to bring this episode to you today, and we'll get to it in just a couple minutes. I have some exciting updates and news to share with you today. But before we get to that, we actually have a former guest on the podcast who has some exciting news of their own. So I'm thrilled to welcome back Sydney Dupre to share her exciting update with us. Sydney, welcome back to the podcast. Hi. Great to see you. Uh, I know you've gotten married since you were on the show last time. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, I also know from social media that you have a really exciting new project coming out very soon, and I was hoping you could tell us about it. Yes. So I am starting a podcast. Um, It's a video podcast on YouTube. Uh, It's called Someone You Deem Not Important FAQs. And I will be interviewing different people with FA, which stands for free dyslexia, my rare disability, and just learning from people and having different conversations because everyone's experience with any disability, but even just my disability is Everyone is so, so different and diagnosed at different stages in their life. And everyone has a completely different story. So I personally just want to learn more about it myself. And I thought it was something that other people would also want to learn about. Yeah, I, I love this idea. I think this is so cool. And you first appeared on Major Pain a while back telling mm-hmm. us about Friedrich's ataxia. Uh, and I saw a clip on Instagram of you talking with another patient, and it immediately sparked my interest because it was such an interesting conversation. Um, <laughs> so I'm thrilled that you're doing this. I, has this been in the works for a while or something that just occurred to you recently? Um, it, I've had the idea for a while. I just started working on it 
Um, a month or two ago, uh, I recently moved to Austin, Texas, and that kind of sparked a lot of creativity. Awesome. And then what are your goals for the show in the future? Are you gonna, is this going to be a short-term thing, a long-term thing? I'm hoping it will be long-term. I already have about 10 different people lined up for episodes so i i've already filmed multiple and i'm filming in a couple days i'm filming next week like i already have a lot lined up and it's very exciting so amazing well i'm really excited to check it out so is youtube the primary place to go to find the podcast yes um it is a video podcast but YouTube um, just added the podcast feature, so you can also just listen to the audio. But um, I enjoyed the visual element as well. Um, I know, like, the one coming out soon about the FA treatment, um, I took some old videos of the person that I interviewed and like overlaid it in our podcast so you can kind of see what growing up with FA looks like. Mm. Wow, so mm -hmm. cool. Well, I think that creating content about your disease from your pers perspective as someone who lives with it is such an amazing opportunity for the rest of us to learn and to, you know, get a sense of what it is that you live through. And then to hear these conversations between different patients, I think is such a great idea. So exciting. Yes. So Sydney, congratulations on this. I can't wait to check it out. Please tell us one more time the name of the podcast and where we can go to find it. Thank you, first of all. It's called Someone You Deem Not Important, FAQs, like FAQs. <laughs> Friedrich's uh, ataxia um, questions. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. So, it's on YouTube. You can find it on my YouTube channel, which is just my name, Sydney Dupre. Awesome. And I will put a link to it in the description of this podcast. Well, as a fellow podcaster, if there's anything I can do to help you out or support you in the future, please let me know. I do hope that my listeners will go check out uh, this new podcast. That's an amazing name. Also, I think the name of the podcast itself says a lot about <laughs> your experience. Um, and I, I can't wait to learn more about your experience too. I mean, just talking to you on the podcast was amazing. Yeah. And that's just a little snippet of you know, of what you have to say, obviously, because you got a whole podcast coming out. So I really encourage my listeners to go check it out. Sydney, thank you so much for coming back on the show to tell us about it. Thank you. Uh, one more thing I want to say. Um, I kind of, I've been on the internet for three years, right? And I'm kind of tired of talking about myself. <laughs> I felt like I've told my story over and over. I'm like, I'm ready to learn other people's stories and share that as well as my own. So that's kind of where the name came from. Mm. Um, someone you deem not important is my name spelled out S-Y-D-N-I. 
um, and then FAQs for other people. But it's also when you're watching or listening to the podcast, you're learning about me as well because we are having a lot of back and forth conversation. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's so cool. And I totally, I totally agree with you. I mean, that's, you know, for me, this podcast is all about other people's stories, you know, and just having a platform Mm -hmm. for other people to share their stories, I think is so Mm -hmm. important. Because yeah, I mean, otherwise, I'd just get sick of my own voice for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, awesome work, Sydney. I can't wait to check it out. Thank you so much for, for giving us the update. Yeah. And thank you for this. Thank you for allowing me to like promote it on here. Absolutely. That means a lot. Well, (laughs) yeah, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled that you're here. Any, anything you need, I'm always here for you. Thank you. All right, listeners, there you go. Someone you deem not important FAQs from Sydney Dupre will be debuting on her YouTube channel. You can check it out, youtube.com slash at Sydney G Dupre. And I will put a link in the description of this episode. We also have some news of our own to share here on the Major Pain Podcast. So first of all, we got a really great new comment on the website on our recent interview with Kevin in an episode titled, A Diagnosis from Every Category, Ankylosing Spondylitis, Vestibular Migraines, Bipolar Disorder, and more, which was an absolutely fantastic conversation. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, it's so much fun. Uh, But we got a comment from Hemlock saying, I just had to say that this man is a true American sweetheart. I was hooting and hollering for him and his story all the way through, saying out loud, we love Kevin to no one but my dog. Truly, what a guy. From fellow Spoonie Hemlock. I love this comment. I totally agree. This is, you know, such a fun episode, a guy that you really root for and who is struggling through a really intense bout of several different things at the same time. So, uh, we're here for you, Kevin. We're thinking of you. And Hemlock, thank you so much for your comment. This was an absolutely massive week for the Major Pain podcast. First of all, I released our season three premiere last week, and I got so much great feedback from it, a lot of attention on the podcast, which was really exciting. And shockingly, we got three new members of our Patreon community in one week, which is completely unprecedented. So I have three thank yous to share. First of all, we have a brand new $2 per month Patreon supporter who goes by PNW Gargoyle for Pacific Northwest Gargoyle on Instagram. This is someone that I will be interviewing soon for the podcast that I'm super excited to chat with. And I'm thrilled that you've decided to support the podcast on Patreon. Next, we have a new $7 per month patron, Heather Muncy. Heather says that she loves the podcast and sends her cousin episodes all the time. Heather, I'm thrilled to have your support. Thank you so much. And lastly, another $7 per month patron, Robert. Robert's family are uh, family friends with my partner Andy's family, and I saw this support come through, and I'm just so appreciative. Robert, I sent you an email asking for your mailing address because I have a gift to send you. For our $7 per month patrons, I have these awesome Major Pain coasters that my mom has made. I've got one in the mail for Heather, and I would love to send one to you, Robert, as well. So if you got that email, send me your mailing address, and I will send you your gift. Heather and Robert will both be added to our end credits, where we thank our $7 per month patrons and $25 per month producers at the end of every single episode. And speaking of our $25 per month producers, I also thank them at the beginning of the episode. So thank you to Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia for your incredibly generous continued support of this podcast. 
To our new Patreon members, PNW Gargoyle, Heather, and Robert, welcome to the Patreon community. We have a huge catalog of bonus episodes for you to check out with myself and my partner, Andy. And you also have my deep gratitude for helping to support this podcast. We are now raising $199.76 per month for creating this podcast. I'm almost at $50 per episode, which is really exciting. And we're almost at that $200 mark. One more patron of any tier and we will hit that $200 per month mark. If you're interested in joining our Patreon campaign to support this podcast with monthly financial contributions, I hope you will check out patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast. I totally understand that a lot of us that participate in this community are chronically ill or disabled, and a lot of us are not working or on disability. So if you do not have the finances to support this podcast, I never want you to feel bad about that. There are plenty of ways to support this podcast that do not cost a thing. First of all, just participating in listening to the show is a huge support. And if that's all you have to give is just your listenership, that is a huge gift, and that is more than enough. If you'd like to go above and beyond, you can support us on social media. We have a brand new YouTube page, youtube.com slash at Major Podcast. Subscribing to that channel and engaging with the content is a huge help. You can follow us on Instagram or TikTok at Major Pain Podcast. You can leave a comment on any episode of the podcast on our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Send me an email with your feedback, your thoughts, your questions for our guests at majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. Sharing the show with a friend or in a support group is a huge help as well. And of course, you can leave us a positive rating and review. If you have a diagnosis of any kind, you can also check out Rare Patient Voice, which is a really cool program where you can actually be paid for your time to participate in research studies and surveys about your diagnosis. It does not have to be a rare disease. It can be any diagnosis of any kind. Use our affiliate link, rarepatientvoice.com slash majorpainpodcast, and you'll be supporting this show while you sign up. I'll remind you as always that I am not a medical professional of any kind. I am a content creator, and our guest this week is a pharmacist, so she is a medical professional, but nothing that she says in this podcast is intended as medical advice. So please do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting your doctor. And with that, we'll jump into our incredible episode with Courtney about her undiagnosed illness. Courtney, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. I'm so excited to chat. We just we just talked a little bit before starting, and it sounds like we have a lot in common, and I'm just really excited to hear your whole story today. Yeah, I'm excited to share. Awesome. Well, Courtney, let's get to know you a little bit. Why don't you tell us about yourself? Okay. I am Courtney. I would say that I am a very curious, kind of silly, very kind person, um, avid traveler, um, a little bit of a nerdy scientist type. Mm. I am a pharmacist by trade and um, avid dog lover, love my family, very snuggly, happy, excited kind of person out in the world. I'm definitely described sometimes as too much. And I kind of actually even like that. That's fine. <laughs> um, okay. Nerdy scientist. That's cool. So nerdy for uh, like certain branches of science or what is it that really gets you going? Yeah. What really gets me going, honestly, and this is very lucky, I guess, considering where I found myself, but um, the biochem, medicinal chemistry, organic chemistry, like all of that stuff, the idea of 
of like, even like the physics of the molecules as they float through space became like such a, like an interesting thing as I started going through my studies and therefore like pharmacy ended up being a really good place because basically all of things are drug, you know, are biological molecules and they have targets in the body and how that interacts and works. I just found that fascinating. Yeah, that's so interesting. And to be someone with a chronic illness and to have this pharmaceutical understanding about what's happening in your body, I don't think that's ever come up on the show. I don't. I I know we've talked to a few, uh, you know, healthcare professionals, medical professionals, some of whom have chronic illnesses, but I don't think that we've talked to a pharmacist. I could be forgetting someone, but I mean, it's been over a hundred episodes at this point. I don't think we've had a pharmacist with a chronic illness before. Great. I feel like this is a good opportunity to share then. Absolutely. <laughs> well, so Courtney, what is your major pain? My major pain is as of yet undiagnosed, mostly neurological illness is the best way that I can describe it. Um, it is quite likely that there is an autoimmune component to it. And um, it, it's just, we're, we're, we're working through you know, possible diagnosis, possible diagnosis, like shooting them down one by one and still haven't quite figured out what's actually going on yet. Yeah. And this is getting back to my roots on the podcast, because this is, you know, when the first episode was my undiagnosed illness. So right. this is where I've lived a lot of my life. So I definitely love, love talking to people who are undiagnosed. Yeah. It's one of my favorite things, just because it, you know, yeah. It still brings me comfort to hear from other people who are undiagnosed. Yeah, like sharing, sharing our stories. And, and honestly, that's kind of like how, how I found you. Like, you know, reaching out through social media to find people who are in the same situations that we are. Yeah. And what have you been tested for? What have you been tested for? How did that work? Did this come up? Did they ever check for this? And I feel like we can like sharing our stories basically helps other people maybe find the path that they could eventually need to be on. Yeah, absolutely. I obviously, I very much agree. I think the first time I heard from you, you were messaging me about, was it porphyria to see if I'd been tested for that? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So spoilers that, for your journey. We'll get there. For me. <laughs> I mean, mine, mine ended up being negative, but I yeah. felt like it was something that, that I, that I, like you almost end up feeling like a moral obligation to share. Like if someone mm. is struggling and I'm able to help minimize that struggle or, or push them in the right direction, then, then that's, that's why I, you know, did this yeah. is, is one of the reasons. Yeah. So I know what you mean. And it's so hard because everyone's on their own journey and, you know, we can only know a little piece of someone else's journey through social media. That's why I like the podcast. Cause it's a long form. You can get a much better yeah. idea about what someone is going through. Um, but yeah, I totally know what you mean about like wanting to share information. If you think it might help someone else, um, which again, that's why I love this podcast so much is because it's just like hundreds and hundreds of little tidbits of information hidden within these conversations. And you never know what might spark an idea for someone else of something new to look into, because we're often just kind of left to our own devices to figure this out when doctors can't and don't want to keep pushing to try. Exactly. When they, when they reach the end of their knowledge base and then they don't even know which direction to look in yeah. or, or, or becoming what I have felt like is, is I call it a hot potato patient <laughs> where something gets dropped into a doctor's lap and it's a hot potato. So they're going to toss it to the next specialist and then to the next specialist and then to the next specialist. And no one person wants to sit with that 
for any lengthy amount of time because it's puzzling and it's troubling and and it's challenging and they have time limits and and insurance limitations and heavy patient loads there's a, there's a whole and i feel like that's like an entirely another topic of all of the limitations of our medical system and and why people with these chronic disease states end up existing in it as long as we do without finding the help that we need wow well said you are clawing at one of my you know one of my deepest wounds because <laughs> I lived through that for so long. Um, right. But I mean, there are, there is good help out there and I'm so lucky that now I have found some good help. And you're, you're also actually contributing to that help. Like we oh, said, like when, 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 when we share our stories that can, you know, point people in the right directions and resources that they didn't know that they needed that then they can end up finding. Oh, totally. I mean, I'm now being examined for mast cell activation syndrome. The first time I ever heard those words were, I'm pretty sure it was Morgan way back at the beginning of the podcast who educated me about that. And it was something that was on my mind since then until my doctor finally sent me to get checked out for it. Um, right. Yeah. I, it's, there's so much power in, in the patients lifting each other up and supporting each other with knowledge. But when you are that hot potato and you like go yeah. drop into a neurologist's lap and they run yeah. all, all the basic tests and it all comes back normal and then they toss you to someone else and maybe it's a rheumatologist they run the basic tests it's all normal yep. they toss yep. you to the psychiatrist who says oh well this is a conversion disorder um and then you just like have nowhere else to go i mean so many people end up in that situation yeah. uh and right. it's it's really really difficult when you have something that is not easily tested for you know, for me, example, mast cell activation, there, there's no good testing. Like the best test is to try the medication. And most doctors are not even willing to go down that route. For me, like most doctors never even heard of mast cell activation, or if they have, yeah. they don't even think that it's real. I've, you know, I've definitely come across that as well. Um, but yeah. again, I'm so lucky to be at University of Washington, where I'm just getting such good care. But, but that feeling of like being tossed and tossed and tossed and not knowing where to go next is like this deep anger and pain that your life and your health doesn't seem to matter to the people that you're going to to get help, which mm -hmm. I, I don't even think that's true. I think that we do matter to them. It's just like we are, it, it, the way that the system is set up, we, we don't matter to them enough to break the system apart to try to help us. Correct. Very correct. Very correct. Um, so for me, my journey started... Um, if I like, it's, it's a hindsight's 2020, right? So yeah. when we, when we start looking back and reflecting symptoms, um, issues that we brushed aside now start to like all add up and start to like link into the bigger picture. Mm. So for me, I would say when I was in pharmacy school, uh, was a very stressful time for me, right? Like your heavy class load. I was working every weekend, really overburdening my body. If I think about it. And I was having a lot of issues with fatigue and you're thinking, oh, that's normal because I'm doing this to myself and you brush it off. Mm -hmm. And I was having some, um, this is why I think autoimmune and, and it like, and later on that started to prove to be true, um, is that, um, in 2000, I graduated in 2010 and then in 2011, um, I had to get my appendix out. Um, but when they got in there, they thought it was going to be a quick laparoscopic thing and they realized that it, um, I would had what they referred to as chronic appendicitis. 
because it had adhered adhesions are something that is that is referred to as scar tissue that's in your um, in your abdomen and it kind of like sticks all of your tissues together and makes everything like all bound because my appendix was getting inflamed and then going down and inflamed and going down and it created all these, these adhesions and sort mm. of encapsulated it and so they got inside and they realized it's not just clipping out an inflamed appendix it was like a tissue dissection basically wow. they had to convert it to open and basically scrape my entire body cavity flush it all out send all that tissue for biopsy and we're a little more <laughs> concerned about what they found in there once they went in wow and uh, me open surgery versus laparoscopic being like laparoscopic is like a tiny tiny little hole correct they had started like you know sticking those little cameras in there yeah. and, and trying to do it like that like they you know appendectomies at this point are pretty easy you snip them out and you move you know you move on um but they got the camera in there and we're like oh no <laughs> because they had to then they had to then like fully, you know, do a full open cavity surgery then oh. because they found so much damage in there. Were you, so were you out? Like, were you? I under, was out. I had no oh, knowledge. Man. You Correct. wake up and you're so, like, oh my God, someone was digging around inside of me in a way that I didn't absolutely. expect. Oof. And I had a drain. I had, I was, I still had a surgical drain in. it went from what I thought was going to be like, snip out my appendix. I'll be out because of all of doing this. And this is what I mean about overworking and overburdening our bodies. Um, I thought that something might be going on. And so I went to the doctor and they were like, oh, it's diverticulitis and sent me back home. So I had been working three consecutive 12 hour shifts in my hospital on Saturday, Sunday, and then Monday. And then I had my surgery on Monday night because I was always also working night shifts. So that's like another thing where I worked seven on seven off night shifts. So I worked three consecutive night shifts and then ended up in my own hospital for emergency surgery on Monday. Wow. So I obviously was like not listening to the signals that my body were sending and not respecting that and working through it and pushing through it, especially as healthcare providers. Cause like, as you touched on, it's not necessarily that we don't care or they don't care or however it ends up being. It's not necessarily us against them as patients and care providers, even though it feels that way sometimes. But like me trying to call in sick to a hospital job, they were like, we don't have anyone to cover your shift. Mm. So we need you to come in. So yeah. I'm working through acute appendicitis yeah. and then getting surgery in my own hospital the next day. Wow. So, so yeah. what? Okay. Appendicitis. This is something that I actually, I mean, you hear it talked about all the time. I know that it's a very common thing, but I couldn't, you know, I couldn't really tell you what appendicitis was if I had to. So can you tell us like, what is appendicitis and what yeah, makes it I mean, acute? I just, I just means inflammation and acute means happening right in that moment. Hmm. So most people, their appendix will become inflamed and enlarged and possibly infected. And that is what is causing their issue. My issue, acute versus chronic, is, is that once they went in there and they saw what was happening to my, to my tissue, basically, is that I was having some sort of chronic inflammation mm. where it would like build up, get all swelled up. It would start like touching the adjacent organs, which in my case, it was my small bowel, my large bowel, my uterus, my ovaries, my bladder. Everything was all stuck together and they had to cut it all apart. And, and loosen it all up as, as well as they could. 
and then move on. And so it's basically that little tiny organ that's like the size of your pinky or smaller swells up and gets all really angry and inflamed. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And so we, I don't know if you've heard the episode with Alana Jacqueline, uh, early on in season two, she has a mysterious adhesion disorder, um, which this is only the second time I've ever heard of anyone say this before of having adhesions like this. Yeah. 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 All this scar tissue build up. And so that was 2011. And obviously that was a big hit to my health. I was shocked yeah. when that happened to me. And it was a it was fairly long process to recover from that. And and that really was my was my first clue that maybe my body wasn't something was going on. So fast forward, I end up like getting it back together. I would say it took me about a six months to like fully recover from that and to become like exercising again, active again, like kind of like working, working my way back into what I would consider like my normal routine. But then I started noticing like extreme fatigue. And again, I just chalked it up to working seven on seven off night shifts. So you're like flipping back and forth with your schedules. Me being an avid traveler, I was low hopping. So I would be like in Australia, in Hawaii, (laughs) in here, in like going anywhere. Mexico, Cambodia, they're just like going, going, going again, probably not resting enough, probably not respecting my body, but flipping between time zones all the time. I obviously just assumed that that was part of my fatigue. And then by 2018, I was literally falling asleep in public Mm. against my own wishes, unable to keep my head up in in a restaurant. The first time I was with my sister and, um, and my nibblings. And, um, and I, it was embarrassing, but also deeply concerning where I, I am ordered food. I can't wait for the food to even come. I'm trying to shake it off. I'm splashing water on my face. I'm washing my hands in cold water. And I was like, I don't know what's happening. And I had to be essentially guided out into the car. And I fell asleep in the car in the parking lot while my family continued dinner. Cause I physically could not stay awake long enough to, to even do that. And I felt like a one-off and I thought that maybe it was just a, you know, whatever. But then I started having histamine issues mm. where um, suddenly I would break out in like light, itchy hives. My tongue would swell a little bit. My nose would get massively congested. My eyes would water. And then I started learning about how histamine actually affects your sleep and wake cycles. And, and eventually I got actually evaluated. It got so pronounced that they, eva- they evaluated me for narcolepsy. Wow. Because they're like, they're like, what, what could, you know, like what could be causing this, this level of fatigue. And I also was beginning to have the very beginning of the neurological issues and that I would have weakness in my hands and, um, and my head would sort of drop. Like I wasn't able to like, like, it felt like my, my face and neck were having like neurological weakness and that was the sign that you need to go and sleep because if you don't do that (laughs) you're gonna do it anyway and you're gonna be in an embarrassing place (laughs) so those were the deals where like and my my friends like i started noticing how bad it was because one of my friends had a polaroid camera and he started snapping pictures of me falling asleep in public places and once you know someone else points something out because we tend to minimize our own issues I, I was like, okay, I can't, I can't deny this anymore. Like something is profoundly wrong here. Yeah. And before I could get 
evaluated with the sleep study with the, the narcolepsy evaluation. So they ordered a sleep study. And I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here. This was also one of the issues that I've continued to face, and I'm sure all chronic disease people face this. My neurologist ordered a sleep study, and she was like, okay, I'm going to put in a referral for this. Once you get it done, come back and we'll discuss the results. She also had no idea how long it was going to take to get in for a sleep study. There was no communication between those two departments, and she expected to see me in a couple of weeks. Meanwhile, it's March and I called them to make an appointment and they said, we can see you in June. Yeah, And that blew her, that blew her away. Like she had no idea that it was going to be that kind of wait because that doesn't enter into the logistics of the person like ordering it. Like that's, that's the stuff that ends up really tripping us up because I can't even get in to get the study that they want done. I mean, granted, a lot of this stuff was happening during COVID for me. And I know that that was a huge problem because clinics had different protocols. I get, I get it, but that still impacted me. So I got on a wait list. And if you're willing to drive to any clinic and drop everything that to go into a sleep study with 24 hours notice, then great. Otherwise you're stuck and you're waiting. So I was still working at that point, even though I was having these fatigue issues. And I'm like, starting to like, it started to really impact my day-to-day life. Like I, I found myself doing nothing but sleeping and working because I like did not have the energy to do two things in one day. It was either work and no grocery shopping, no laundry, no nothing. Like you do work and then you sleep for the other nine, 12 hours that you have. And that was what was happening. So before I was even able to get those results read, because it took so many months for me to get in, so that it was May, and I finally jumped into a waitlist spot, between me getting the sleep study and my follow-up appointment with that neurologist, the next symptom hit, and that's, that was the nail in the coffin for me working. Because I started having what they first described as hemifacial spasms, where I was literally in a hospital working night shift. It is 4.30, almost five in the morning. So the, almost the end of my shift and suddenly, and I'd been having that, you know, prickly nerve pain, like static is the way I sometimes describe it. Or I don't know if you've ever been stung by a jellyfish, but like those little, that, like that kind of burning type pain had been kind of like fluttering around on the right side of my face. Um, and then suddenly in the middle of my shift, I had like a very clear line and my right side of my face suddenly started viciously contracting where my eyebrow would crunch down and my eye would almost close I, like a grin, like my, the right side of my mouth would pull up like a half smile and then like deep in my cheek and all of the small muscles that were, that normally coordinate the movement of your eyeball all of those started clenching down and spasming in a drum, like dramatic, like there was no way for me to hide that. That mm. was visible. And even with the mask on working in the hospital, it, it was still noticeable. And I was like, what is this? And it wasn't particularly painful unless it really clenched down. And then it was what I would kind of describe as a Charlie horse. There wasn't a lot of neurological pain associated with it. It was mostly just muscle movements. So I went down to my own ER, like walk, like walk in there, pull my mask down, show like my colleague, who's like my work friend, you know, like he's an ER doc and I show him and he is shooketh. He's like, 
I don't know what that is because at first you think stroke, right? Mm. You know, like, like, sure. oh, one half. I'm like, no, I'm like cognitively intact. I can move my hands and feet. It's nowhere except my face. And then he's like, oh, hemifacial spasms. Like there's a couple of weird things that can cause that. I need to get a hold of neurology. In the meantime, it's a working busy ER. We had someone that ended up with an issue that we could not not address. So I am finishing my shift. There's only me. I'm the only pharmacist in this entire hospital. So I don't get to not work. So I'm going to call my relief to come in. But in the meantime, I put my mask up and I go back to work with that going on. Wow. Yeah. And so I end up finishing my shift and they didn't really want me to leave the ER in that state. But healthcare professionals tend to be a little fast and loose with things like that. And I was all like, eh, I'm going to call my neurologist. Because at that point, it had been going on for a few hours and nothing worse had happened. So I was like, well, I'm going to touch base with them and we'll, we'll see what the recommendation is. Clearly, when I called my neurologist, they were like, you need to go to the ER, <laughs> right? So I did. I went back um, to my own ER um, and I was hoping that um, I, I also had, like, had gone to sleep and slept, slept through my facial spasms because I was so exhausted from the night shift. And I went home and um, alerted my, um, my roommate at the time, also a medical professional. He worked with me at the hospital. So I was all like, hey, medical professional, this is happening to me. And he's like, what? You know, like wanted to take me right back. I said, no, I'm going to try to get some sleep. Maybe it'll go away. Maybe it's just electrolytes, whatever. No. So basically at this point, it had been going on for something like 20 hours. And I went back to my own ER and, um, and that began my journey. I literally never stepped back into work ever again mm. because things just got out of control. Wow. Um, I got admitted because they were worried about um, seizure activity, did an MRI, um, they found like a small venous abnormality in my left frontal lobe that they said that was probably just born with, like, it's a little bundle of vascular tissue, probably not it, maybe it, not really sure. Um, I got sent into the epilepsy unit so they could check to do a, an EEG to see if there was an epileptic cause to this type of stuff. Um, they couldn't find any correlation with that. And they had like a camera on my face and all the electrodes hooked up to my head, you know, like, have you ever gotten something like that done? Oh, yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So they like stick it all over your scalp. I have big, huge, long head of hair. So like that was a hassle and they're gluing it on me. And, and, and it, I remember like at the time, not having any idea what was coming down the pipeline for me. Like as a medical professional, I was pretty comfortable with those types of um, testing and things like that. But then when it's you, when it's you, it's a really different thing. So it ended up not being any sort of thing. The neurologist that came and spoke to me at this point, I was really lucky because these were still my colleagues. You know, these were people that they had either worked with me in the ER or discussed other patient cases with me. So like at this point, it, it felt more informal, like chatting between colleagues, trying to figure out what was going on with the patient, but the patient just happened to be me. <laughs> um, yeah. And um, the neurologist that I was dealing with was a very, she was very kind and she knew immediately that this was a little bit out of her. She was like, this, this is, this is something that's probably pretty big. And so like, that was my first clue that this was going to be a longer journey. Cause she said that she just, 
that she hasn't really seen something like it before. She wasn't really sure. She knew that it was not a regular neurologist issue. She ordered a whole bunch of labs for me before I was discharged, basically as a, as a professional courtesy to give me like a baseline to send me on to the specialist that she knew she was going to send me to because it was too much for her to deal with. Do you, remember, that, do you remember what you felt like in that moment? Oh yeah. I was profoundly scared. Yeah. Like when, when, when it's no longer, cause like I know enough to, to know that when the, the baseline people don't have an idea what's going on, like she, she ordered, and, and this is the part being scary, like as a medical professional, when I saw the list of labs that she ordered, it was like a perineoplastic panel, which is looking for a bunch of cancers. Hmm. And it was, you know, like a thyroid panel. And it was um, like start, sort of starting to nudge over in the autoimmune because neurology and rheumatology, as you pointed out before, like overlap with the disease states that are like MS neuro lupus like different things like that so i could see that she was setting me up for all of those lab panels yeah. i knew it in you know i knew it as a clinician reading my own chart and i was like oh oh no oh no <laughs> like like this isn't this isn't good and um and at that point i started you know thinking thinking a little bit more long term and I think back to the goals that I was setting for myself. My first goal was we need to figure this out because I need to get back to work. Sure. And I think, and I think about what an unworthy goal that was because it spoke nothing of my health. It was figure out this inconvenience, which is literally my health and my body. Let's figure that out so I can go back and work. That's that's not, that shouldn't be my goal, right? Wow, that's a fascinating way to look at that because that was my goal for so long and still yeah. kind of is. <laughs> right, <laughs> Even exactly. though I'm, I'm really doing a lot of work on the podcast, but I, you know, I want to be stable enough to, to be employable, you know? Correct. Like that, that was my first goal for a really long time. Yeah, and, for and a long time. You're giving me some interesting feelings thinking about that. Yeah, so that was my first goal. And then my second goal, was just to get a diagnosis. Yeah. And again, I started to reflect and I was like, that's also not a worthy goal. Like, where am I in those goals? Getting a diagnosis and going back to work says nothing about how I feel on a day-to-day -day basis or what my quality of life is or like how I fit into this new world that I found myself in. So it's been a lot of emotional work as well as physical and logistical work, like making my appointments, keeping track of things, being able to grocery shop and eat and, and like basic caregiving things. Like there's times like where, where my weakness and my fatigue and my nausea, and I have all of these other, like, um, like not really side effects, but like when your nervous system starts to be profoundly impacted by everything you, I mean, you really realize how what a delicate balance our bodies are and when your heart rate or your digestion or your skeletal muscles stop working in the way that they're supposed to work because your brain can't tell them how to do it everything shuts down wow like yeah. you're you know like it's so so i i started to to you know really have to reflect on on 
where this journey was going to take me and, and how much I needed to focus on not fitting myself into this system that's profoundly broken. And I need to start like protecting myself, working for myself, working through my issues and being kind to myself when I felt unproductive. That was something that I really struggled with. How long did that transition take? That transition is still in process, my friend. <laughs> I, I, I continually have to remind myself yeah. that, that what I am doing is maybe not valued by society kind of work, but it's the work that is has to start at the beginning to ever get me to the place where I'm going to actually be able to, to, to be productive and employable again. Because I was really hard on myself, like being a, essentially a professional caregiver. Like when you go into the medical field, like, like work, 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 take care of others, do this, do that. When, when all of that, when I, when I became uncapable, incapable of doing that, unable to do that for myself, I started really like not valuing my self-worth as much, I don't think. Yeah. And it, and and it was, it's, it's, it's a work in progress. It's absolutely a work in progress. I feel the same way. I, I think that's a very normal way to feel in that scenario. Cause we live in this capitalist society that values you based off of how much money you make. And when suddenly your livelihood is gone uh, because yeah. of your health. And we also live yeah. in a society that values strength. So when you are yeah. making money and you are weak, who are you? Yeah. What are you? What is your value? That's it's really difficult. Vulnerable. Yeah. I've never felt so vulnerable in my life. How long yeah. ago did this happen when you left work? So uh, that was May of 2021. Okay. That was the that was the last day. I mean, and I literally punched out, went home, expected to be, you know, like expected it to go away and to just be able to bounce back. And first it was like, no, you need to be out for two weeks. And then my symptoms just ended up getting worse. Really? They decided to start a anti-seizure medication on me to try to stop my face from moving like that, which was somewhat effective. Even though it wasn't epilepsy, they're still like, well, let's try to slow some of these neurological impulses down and we'll, we'll, we'll use these anti-seizure meds and we'll, and we'll see if they help. And they did help somewhat. But then after I got discharged and I was... Um, a few days back and I ended up like staying with, with one of my friends because, um, she worked from home. He was able to like, be kind of like watch because we didn't know what this was or how bad it was going to get. And so like living by yourself or, you know, like, even having like not a lot of people around, like if something were to get suddenly bad, you might not even be able to call for help. So I was like, that, that was a hard pill to swallow for me. Like I was a very independent person and suddenly I, I, very much needed someone in my corner. So moved, moved on with that and had essentially like a caregiver around all the time. And I'm so glad that I did because it started to, to increase to like down my face, my arm, my right shoulder, um, my right arm down into my rib cage, um, uncontrollable movements, shaking, um, Sometimes I would have an aura ahead of it. So I, I mean, actually most of the time. And, and I, that's why they were starting to think seizure disorder, right? Like it, it kind of like started to seem like, but I was pretty cognitively intact when it was happening. Like it wasn't like I was, as people think of like, uh, like a tonic clonic, like full body seizure where you like shake and shut down. It was more of, of like discoordinated muscle movements, involuntary 
muscle movements um, while knowing that it was happening to me and not being able to stop it. Yeah. Um, so they then did an MRI on my spine because previously it just affecting my face. They weren't thinking of, of the spinal cord at all. Cause like your cranial nerve, you know, that's all your brain and feeds right into your face. Um, so then once more body started to be involved in it, they, they did a, um, a CT and an MRI and they found some lesions in my spine. And those are still very much up for debate on what they are, but that started pushing it down the MS pathway. Right. Um, and I ended up going to a great neurologist. She was very, very compassionate, but she basically said they don't look like MS lesions to me. And she was an MS specialist. I'm not really sure what they are. Um, so that's great. Mm-hmm. You know, like when, when you just don't know. Um, so they did a spinal tap and they'd done antibody testing. And I, I'm always just slightly below normal. Like nothing is, is like frankly wrong with the labs. So it doesn't ever give me a diagnosis, but it'll still show some mild dysfunction. It looked like I had four or five different disease states all layered up on top of one another because then when they did my spinal tap and they ran an MS panel for antibodies, they were there at low levels. And also the lupus ones were there at low levels. And they're just like, okay, um, they're not enough to give any specific diagnosis, but that's concerning. They re-ran them later and they had gone up, but still borderline. My lymph nodes were all enlarged, but just borderline. They could be reactive versus, you know, like they start worrying about lymphomas or leukemias, you know, all kinds of different stuff. But, but nothing, nothing ever really presented itself. And then I spoke to a rheumatologist who looked over my stuff. And she gave me some advice that did not feel good at the time, but has very much proven itself to be true. She basically said that with autoimmune disorders, um, they flare up and go down. And you're like, if they don't catch the labs at the exact right time, they might not catch the peak. And you're doing everything that you can to take care of yourself. Like this, you know, low inflammatory diet, low histamine diets, like All of these different things that you are desperately doing to help control your symptoms can then ultimately mask your disease. Because if Mm. you're not in a flare, then it's not going to get caught. And she said that your next flare might not be for years sometimes. And that just continues to put off your eventual diagnosis. And I, I do feel like that's kind of what ended up happening because that that began the hot potato where the neurologist, the MS neurologist said, I don't think that that's this. They checked me for neuromyelitis optica. They checked me for MS. They checked me for lupus. They checked me for um, Sjogren's, um, like all, all of these other different things. And, and it was, I was always a little bit shy of what, what would actually get a definitive diagnosis. And it was a complete accident but on one of the, um, the lab panels that my neurologist ordered, um, copper was, was checked without it being intended to be checked. <laughs> and therefore, they ran a copper lab for me. And then they found that it was low. And that was something that I have now been struggling with since, since we found it. 
that it was low. And they had no idea why. She said, hey, I accidentally ordered this and it's low. And then I found out with these micronutrients how important copper is to our neurological symptoms. It's, it's, it can actually cause demyelination, which is what they were thinking that the lesions in my spine were. And I was really hoping that it was going to be something as simple as a micronutrient deficiency and that I'd be able to treat that and then everything would be better. You know, we start to hope for those kinds of things. And it sounds kind of funny when you, and I've, and I've heard chronically ill people describe this over and over again, that even if it's bad news, if that's the news, we desperately want it. And I can completely relate that like, like all of the things that they were throwing out as possible diagnoses, you think, no, I don't want that one. No, I don't want that one. And then you start to like pick, Ooh, can I just replace my copper and everything will be great again? <laughs> So that started me on that pathway where we started on supplements and for whatever reason, it did not work. I'm eating copper supplements and my levels are not going up. They're not going up. They're not going up. There's a transport protein that takes copper all around your body because um, it's copper is really not supposed to be what I consider unchaperoned. Yeah. Like it, it, it needs to be attached and then delivered in a way that's not going to be toxic to your body. And it's, it's attached to this protein. And they, then they decided to measure that protein and it was low normal, but the more supplements they gave me that continued to drop. And so that kind of opened up the door for possibly Wilson's disease, which yeah. can cause seizures, which can cause all of these things. And that's where copper accumulates in your neurological system and your liver and your eyeballs. And, um, but I wasn't showing any of those other signs. So, um, fast forward down a million supplements and a million labs. I finally asked for some genetic testing for Wilson's disease. Cause you can check for that. And it gets confusing because I am a carrier for Wilson's disease. I have one copy of the gene, but not both copies. And they previously were thinking that you needed both copies to actually be impacted by it. Um, as with anything genetic, I know that medical science has not caught up with what's actually happening. Genes being able to be expressed and not expressed. And so I feel like that there's still, still some ambiguity about whether or not someone who quote unquote is just a carrier is not going to be impacted by that. I, I don't, I don't think that that's correct in my, in my personal opinion. When, when I was being worked up for Wilson's disease, um, my hepatologist told me that people that are carriers can have symptoms. So I know I and I I hear you that that's like controversial. And my doctor, my hepatologist was wrong about a lot and some very crucial things. So take that with a grain of salt. But that is something she told me. And yeah, so yeah. I, I had low copper, low ceruloplasmin as well. Yes, exactly. Ceruloplasmin being the protein that I was talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my hepatologist told me that sometimes that can be a sign that your body is storing it. That it's not that it's low, it's actually super high. So then I did a bunch of uh, 24-hour urine collection tests looking for copper. Well. What yeah. were the results of that for you? Okay. Crazy is what they were. Um, the first one I had, copper was absolutely undetectable in any way. And they yes. said that's not normal. That They're happened like, to me too. It. And then did you do the, uh, the, cha the penicillamine challenge? They would not do that for me. Why? Okay. Well, background information, penicillamine challenge, it, penicillamine is a chelator that attaches to the copper in your body and forces your body to flush it out. So yeah. I did that. Um, my, my urine testing with no penicillamine was like really, really, really low. 
And then with penicillamine, yeah. it was much higher, but not not the way, way, way higher that you'd expect with Wilson's disease. So that, exactly. and then, and that was sort of like, well, we're not sure. So then I did a liver biopsy and it was not high copper. And that was when it was like, okay, we're wrong about this. It's not Wilson's for me. Yeah. They refused to do that for me as well. Why? Exactly. Why? That's a good question. I think it's because, so, so when my, when, because people ultimately it's because people think that they're right and they don't really like to be questioned. Because yeah. what happened was they, they, they did my labs and they said that it is, it's low. And then I did the first 24 hour urine collection and it was literally undetectable. And I had, you know, being a clinical pharmacist, I, an unwork, like I'm out of work at this point, I'm not working. So I'm trying to use all of my toolbox of my, you know, how to read scientific papers, how to evaluate them to know if that they're true, because like anybody can like write a paper and read a paper, but knowing if it's like a well-constructed study to know if it's been done correctly. And I like looked up these experts in the field and they specifically said, if you get a 24 hour urine collection and the results come back less than 10, mine was less than five undetectable. They're like, you need to rerun it because that's not biologically possible. They're like, mm -hmm. that's something is wrong. It needs to be redone. So I am attempting to bring, bring these things to the attention of these various specialists that I'm seeing. And that is a tightrope to walk on because <laughs> I feel that if you present yourself in a way that maybe seems like you're going to be quote unquote, a difficult patient, sometimes they just don't want you as a patient at all. Oh my God, that's so true. And I use words like, okay, so I was talking to my other doctor about this thing and it came up that maybe this should be checked. And I, it, when it's like, my other doctor is Dr. Google, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. um, exactly. Or, or, or like just a, a random conversation with my primary care physician or something. I try, I right. try not to tell doctors that these things are my idea or that it's coming from my research because I found right. that I will get no results that way. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I, I look at it almost like a job interview or that I'm interviewing for something. I'm trying to make myself as appealing as possible. So a doctor <laughs> will, will take, will take an interest in me and, and like do these out of the box, you know, to studies and tests. And, and a lot of it is also limited by like the algorithms that the insurance company set up. Mm -hmm. Like they go through a checkbox. So basically for me with the liver biopsy, they were all like, is your copper low? Check. Is your seroloplasmin low? Check. Do you have neurolog neurological symptoms? Check. Do you either A, have elevated liver enzymes, B, have kidney issues, or C, have visible copper rings in your eyeballs? Mm -hmm. And because I did not fit those criteria, they would then not do that test. And I said, so you're telling me that I have to wait for one of my organs to fail before you'll test me to see if that's what's causing it to fail. Like I, I have to get to the point where my liver is completely overwhelmed with the amount of copper that is being stored inside of it for you to do a liver biopsy to make sure that that's the case. And they were like, yes. Or even just the penicillamine challenge, which is non-invasive. But you just, you just need to take a drug and then collect your pee. That's it. Now I know. That, that's really upsetting. And I, I went through the same exact thing, but that, but those three 
checks were enough to get me to the next check because yeah. the you're referring to the Wilson's disease checklist, which is like you, right. those are literally the things on the checklist. And if you have, is it four? I think if you have four, then you can be diagnosed and you, right. you have three. I had three. I had three. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. I couldn't get to the fourth and that's why we eventually abandoned that and moved on. Um, but the, but I, but I was able to get the testing, you know, and that it's really surprising to me that you could have three and not go down the entire list. And, you know, that's when it's time to like get a different doctor. That's when it's time to get a second opinion somewhere else, in my opinion. So I have had a great many number of second opinions. Mm. I, that's what I mean by hot potato. Like I, I was bounced all over the place. I've been to um, the Cleveland clinic out at like, I've, I've been, I've been everywhere. And, and this is also one of those things that um, as a medical professional, as, and I start to think about um, barriers to care, yeah. like that's the way that I, that I look at it. Um, when you start to have a laundry list of doctors that you have seen and seen and seen and seen and seen, and seen that starts to be a red flag mm. for other care providers. Uh. They, they look at that and they, and they feel like, that's not something that they want to take on because you've already, they, like I've had people say, I don't think I would have anything further to contribute. You've already seen this many people. I don't think I would have anything further to contribute. I've been there so many times. This is all very yeah. traumatic for me to hear because that's so, it's so similar. And yes, I've been through these exact things. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's so, it's so upsetting because to, sometimes to advocate for yourself, you're right. If you have too many doctors on your list, they stop listening to you. I, I ran into that for sure. That's why I started yeah. over at a completely different hospital um, because right. I, I couldn't get anyone to help me at Pacific Medical Center. It was just like, you've had too many doctors. It's like you're at a bar and you're cut off. You know, it's 2 a.m. Right. You got to get out, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Not yeah. my problem yeah. anymore. Yeah. yeah, it's it's hot potato. You yeah. Know? yeah, it's 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 like, I don't even want to, I don't even want to enter into this daunting you know, like they, they, they look at it as like being set up for failure. I think like if, if these people couldn't figure it out, how am I supposed to do that with my patient load and everything that I have going on right now, like better, better minds than mine have tried. How am I supposed to do this? Yeah. How am I supposed to do this? But, so, but you have a, like, you have a carrier gene. I did the genetic yeah. testing and it was straight up negative. Yes, sir. So I, 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 I know, <laughs> I know. And so what I ended up doing, because then I was desperately, I was, and as like, again, like, I'm like, I have been eating copper supplements up to eight milligrams wow. a day yeah. for months wow. with no increase. And I was really worried that I was literally poisoning myself by having that accumulate into my body. Sure. And at one point, all I was asking was advice from a hepatologist on whether I should or should not continue the supplements because my you know, I had one medical professional that said, I believe that you are truly low. Something is happening in you that you're either using up more copper or you're processing it in a different way or, and, and like my diet was not like, not at all low copper, like just the foods that I naturally gravitate towards are all high copper foods. So it's not like I was on some like strict diet that would have accidentally set me up for copper failure. Or like sometimes taking too many zinc supplements can like block your copper absorption. I was not doing that. Like there was all these other like things that you can kind of like rule out to make sure that 
that you're not causing this deficiency by it, by doing something else. Like I was really, really careful about, especially once I found out that I, that I thought that I was deficient in copper, I started eating high copper diet. I started, you know, like doing so many things that then I was worried was poisoning me. And I don't, and suddenly that I felt very lost. I didn't know who to believe. Should I believe this doctor that assures me that my copper is low? Uh, should I believe this genetic testing that says that I definitely might have an issue? Should I believe this other doctor that claims that it's definitely not that, but will not put themselves out there to say that I should continue the supplements? And I ended up calling one of my old professors who is the, like, I graduated in 2010. So this has been like so long. But he was such, he taught so well and he had attention to detail and the compassion that I was like, I know he has literally hundreds of students every year, but I'm going to get a hold of him. Like you get to the point where you, where you're desperate and you'll follow any avenue that you think that will give you help. And I was lucky enough that he was kind enough to, to open, you know, to open his door to me and like break down my case. I sent him an email ahead of time just like a student presenting, you know, presenting their patient, like I had to in his class. And we systematically talked about it. And we talked about, this is why this, as I referenced, like the biomechanics of the body, how my passion for that really helped me understand that part of my disease state. Because that protein that is mutated in my case has two jobs. One job is to package the copper up if you have too much, send it out in the bile, passes into your stool. The other job of that is to chaperone it down and to attach to that seroloplasmin. And those two jobs, which that, whichever one that the protein decides to do is based on concentration, which means like how much copper is available in any given moment. So if I was truly low, taking eight milligrams of copper all at once was overwhelming that system and creating a situation where it was preferring to dump it. So even though my body was needing it, taking that in all at once probably was not what was right for my personal body because of that mutation, especially. So we started working or I started working with that knowledge to think about like, how, how do I need it delivered into my body? And I need a little bit over like, like almost like dripping it in. So my body doesn't get overwhelmed. And it says like, Oh, there's a little bit of copper. Cool. I need that. I'll attach it to this protein and send it away without overworking my liver. And I started just, I stopped all of my supplements and I started doing dietary control, different formulations, liquid formulations. So it's not taking a big capsule all at once. And I eventually was able to get my uh, seroloplasmin back up and almost get my copper to normal but at least I know that it's working and I'm no longer worried that I'm literally poisoning myself with supplements. Wow. So, so that, that's sort of confirmation that it was indeed low. Cause the, the scary thing with, with Wilson's disease is like, sometimes you can test low when it's actually super high because it's just correct. not, not circulating when they draw your blood. Exactly. Um, it's because it's yeah. trapped in your tissues and it's right. not floating around in your blood. And yes. that, that was something that I really dealt with as well. Cause I was like, okay, is it high or low? Because I'm going on, a low copper diet. I'm taking zinc yeah. acetate to try to chelate whatever to try copper. To flush it all out. Yeah. Meanwhile, you might really need that. Right. And for me, so the weirdest thing for me was that uh, the low copper diet has some similarities to the low histamine diet. And yeah. zinc is really good for people with MCAS. So yeah. 
um, you know, looking back on this experience, my experience with the Wilson's disease thing, when I went on the protocol, I started to get better, but not that much better, just a little bit better. And then I kind of yeah. stopped. Um, yeah. Looking back now, it's like, okay, because that was the first step that I was taking towards the low histamine life that I am now living, where I'm getting a lot better. Um, so yeah. there was like some uh, crossover in the treatment that tricked me into thinking I was on the right path until I got that like liver biopsy and it was like devastating when it was, you know, normal. When it wasn't what, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. I, this is what I was, I completely agree. I feel, I like, I feel you because when, when a disease state is presented and it's treatable and it's manageable and you know that, that like, even though you don't want this, like you're like, I would really not like to have an inheritable, incurable genetic disorder. However, if that was it and I could treat it, I could dig myself out of this hole that I find myself exactly. in. So I'll take it. Yeah. 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 And that's exactly how I felt about Wilson's disease. And that's how I feel about MCAS, which is like, <laughs> this is not a diagnosis that, that, uh, that I want to get rid of. Like, this is one that I want to keep. <laughs> if right. they were to tell me I don't have MCAS right now, I would be devastated. Like, it would be so upsetting. But yeah, my liver biopsy also showed like a pattern of damage in my liver, but we had no idea why. And now yeah. it's like, okay, well, if my, if my mast cells were um, constantly active and releasing mediators to a toxic level, that could absolutely damage my liver along with like uh, every other organ your in your body. <laughs> like, exactly. Every organ in your body, yeah. your basis of humanity, all of your cells all at once, yeah. which would explain the fatigue, right? Yeah, oh, of course. Every yeah. single cell of your body is under attack. Oh yeah. Okay, cool. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, so let's get into that with you because you mentioned some histamine issues and I know from talking yeah. to you before we started recording that you have been on a mast cell protocol. So where does that jump yeah. into the mix? So that jumped into the mix really. Um, I ended up seeing a naturopathic provider. Um, and, and because at, at this point I've got no doctor anywhere that's agreeing on what my diagnosis is. Like I got functional neurological disorder, but then other people were like, that doesn't match up because you have lesions in your spine so that it can't be that one. Um, possibly lupus, possibly this, these aren't high enough. No one would give me a diagnosis. It was whoever was the loudest person in the room at any given point that, that we are trying to find. So I got referred um, to a naturopathic provider because of the copper issues, especially like they tend to be better with, um, with those kind of nutrients and different things like that. Traditional Western medicine is not really great in, in using food as medicine. Yeah, right. Yeah. So they, they were all like, okay, well then go talk to a naturopathic provider. In addition to all of the other people that I'm also seeing, you know, which is great. And so I went down acupuncture i've done like anything that has a risk to benefit ratio that is in my favor i have actively and aggressively pursued and was committed to it i have done acupuncture i have done somatic feedback control like where i'm trying to calm my autonomic nervous system so i'm not flipping myself out when i get upset and creating more issues because everyone of course always says anxiety Oh, that you're because you're having anxiety. So I'm just all like, well, I'm going to see a naturopath. I'm going to see a therapist. I'm going to see a acupuncturist. I'm going to see a somatic feedback therapist. Anybody that can help me on this journey that I know will not be actually detrimental. Like I'm not going to go off the rails and, you know, try to have something that doesn't have like proven medical, you know, support. It's not going to hurt me. Like there's nothing that's going to be wrong with me 
um, learning to meditate, for example, things like that, anything that you can do to help improve your system. I was, I was doing all of that. Um, so that naturopathic provider ended up being extremely helpful, mostly because she listened, right? She was present. She listened. She was respectful to my thoughts and my opinions. And she was willing to, when I threw out something and the risk to benefit ratio was in favor of testing, she was, you know, one that would be willing testing. She was the one that started me on the low histamine. And she was the one that started me on the chromalin. And she's wow. the one that, that put me down that path. And, and a lot of it was also like my, my own. And this is what I said. Like, I, I don't know how a, a non-medical professional can even like navigate this because with all of the tools in my toolbox, I am still struggling, but like, I would realize that a medication, I was having vertigo and different things like that. So I started on meclizine, which is um, Dramamine, right? It's usually used for motion sickness. But the class of that drug is technically an antihistamine. That is what that drug is. Yes. And so when I started on that to help with my vertigo and all of these other symptoms started calming down, we started discussing it like that. So then we started layering on other things to calm down my, um, my immune system. And we, and I was finding it beneficial again, not completely erasing my symptoms, but at least helping with some of the things that were going on. And if I can get it, I'll take it, right? Well, the fact that it takes you going outside of the traditional medical system to find someone who's willing to listen and take you seriously, you know, that's so deeply upsetting, especially because I experienced that as well until I found the doctors I'm with now who I can't say enough good things about. But yeah, I mean, I, I ended up in a naturopath and I had a at first, it was a great experience. At first, it was like, wow, this person says they've met other people like me. And that was so unique at the time. And, you know, and it ended up being a very bad experience for me over time. <laughs> and this right. does not sound like that at all. This sounds like actually a really great experience. Well, I feel like the the over time is it ends up being the exact same issue with no matter what, no matter their field of practice, eventually they get overwhelmed, yeah. no matter who they are or how they are when they can't figure out what's going on. And, and things will, will turn bad. And, and again, me being able to, to guide my own care in a way, like, so if she, if, if a doctor says something to me, no matter who they are, like a traditional MD, a specialist, a naturopath, if they present something to me and it doesn't quite jive because I've done a deep dive into the biomechanics of everything that has existed in every paper that I have access to, I have enough like back data to, to question it in a way that a lot of people wouldn't. Right. So, so like, and I also had access to like colleagues and my professor and like, so I'm basically like getting my own loose infrastructure of all of these people who just personally care about me that happen to have these kind of connections. It's, it's like, that just gives me an unfair advantage to the average person. So, so I can pull back and guide my care in a way that most people are not, you know, like that's a privilege. That and is yet a privilege. It's still so impossibly hard. And it is still, <laughs> and yet here I am two years later, unemployed, I'm not even able to return back to my work without medical clearance. And so I'm finding myself in a pretty tough situation because basically once that happened, when I was at work, think about how profoundly dangerous that was for the patients in that hospital. Suddenly the care team is having to divide their time between their colleague, 
that is supposed to be the pharmacist on call who is now having medical issues. And that was why I literally was never allowed back to work because they said, you have been relieved on medical leave. You cannot come back without medical clearance. And I have not found a doctor who's willing to clear me because as these things escalate and escalate as they are, these seizure-like activity has just increased. I'm having tendon contracture in my hands where like my tendons, like you've seen like spasticity where like your wrists will be bent at an angle and your, and your hands are like claw-like and pulled in. Mm. I'm having that. I've had I'm having like bouts, yeah, bouts of confusion, um, times where, where like, where the fatigue is so overwhelming. Um, and I've, I've seen this, I've seen this on, on your social media as well, where you stand up and your heart rate shoots to 140 beats a minute and you, you can't keep like my diastolic blood pressure will be high. My systolic will be low. Um, my, I had an incident where my blood sugar crashed down into the forties. Um, I was not with it. Like when your blood sugar is in your forties, that's, you can fall into a coma. I was anybody that has a loved one with diabetes. If they've ever seen this, they could, they know exactly what I'm talking about where your blood sugar gets low. Imagine being hangry, but like really hangry where you are not, you cannot make good decisions. You are not make like my, my friend was trying to like get me to drink juice and I was denied, like I needed that to save my life in that moment. And I was refusing it. I just wanted to go to bed. I just wanted to be left alone because I wasn't making good sense. Mm. Like, I, I mean, when I say that I truly, truly need a caregiver present with me to catch these events when they occur to keep me from crashing or becoming hospitalized, like th that's, that's very real and true for me at this point in my life. So I can completely understand why a doctor is not going to say, oh, yeah, totally. You can go back to work in an ER and take care of other people. There's yeah. no there's no there's no way it's that I could do that. And like as and that started, you know, like pulling me into the world of of employment lawyers and disability and, and understanding how to navigate all of that stuff and keeping track of my paperwork and 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 like eventually getting terminated from my job and, and fighting the the FMLA laws and all of the ERISA laws that that dictate this. Like it it has pulled me into a world that I, I never expected to be. I knew insurance companies could be unsavory, but it never occurred to me how a literal team of lawyers are going to comb through your most personal and private medical history to rip your case apart. And to t show to basically what eventually will be a judge to, to rip apart my credibility and the misogyny and all of these other things. Like the idea that there, that you are a hysterical female mm. is like, we're still present in this society. Like we know that, that women's health issues like often get like pushed aside. Um, and, and I, I can totally attest to that. I, I've, I've had, you know, like so many things called into question as if I'm not a good witness for myself. And that type of medical gaslighting really, really impacts the patient. Yeah, You start doubting yourself so much. I mean, I have broke down at times and have literally asked my friends, I'm, even though I have 
demyelination in my spine. I have chronic labs that show up like just abnormal enough so they can, can't completely disprove that something's going on. Even with all of that massive evidence, I still doubted myself. And I was like, am I having a mental health issue? And then the idea that a mental health issue is somehow less valid of deserving of care than a physical one. Like, how is that even like that? I mean, again, that's a whole like that can be a topic in itself. Like the, the idea that even if it was a complete and exclusively mental health issue, why am I less deserving of care? I've said the why same thing. I, I totally agree. Why am I less deserving of of um, disability coverage? Like yeah. it's still impacting my ability. And there's this terrible catch-22 that the insurance companies sort of like have instituted to protect themselves from ever having to pay out on these things. They will say a diagnosis in itself is not equal to a disability. For example, if I was diagnosed with MS they would still not say MS equals disabled. They would look at my symptoms and they would say, how is the MS making you disabled? And I would say seizure activity, neurological um, impacts in that I lose control of my dominant hand. At times I'm unable to communicate. At other times my fatigue is so great. Um, All of these other things. Then they would decide whether those symptoms were bad enough to make me disabled. But then on the flip side, because I'm undiagnosed, they are not willing to take that same list list of symptoms and say that, yes, you are disabled. There's no way for me to win in this situation without getting my case presented to what I hope will be an informed and compassionate judge that sees things for the way they are and sides on my side. And, and that's my, my whole existence is now caught up in in that and that is not anything that i ever expected and the loss of privacy in that is also something that i never expected like the idea that you are in it like the most vulnerable place that you've ever been in your life attempting to present your case to a physician and in the back of your mind you're you are worried about your phrasing and you're worried about how you're presenting yourself because that team of lawyers you know has the right to access that and rip it apart and tell the judge that you're crazy that you're hysterical that you're not truly disabled that you're faking that you're lying that you're not that bad and so you really have to concisely and accurately explain your symptoms in a way that is basically a legal document. Yeah. You are doing an incredible job of describing what this is like. And you're really making me relive my own experiences, a lot of which are incredibly similar. What you're talking about, like trying to prove yourself, not only to your doctors, but legally that you are disabled when you desperately need to be on disability because you cannot work because your body is not allowing it, but you can't get anyone else to listen to you and believe you. Um, And the whole system is sort of set up to make it as hard as possible because they're so overwhelmed by people who need these services. Um, And you know, there's this sort of fallacy out there that most people who apply for disability are faking, which I don't believe, you know, I don't think that's true. I don't believe that as well. Yeah. And, and it's, and like the, the catch 22 that I have found myself in actually has 
I, when I was discussing my case with an employment lawyer, I basically said, well, this happened to me while I was at work. So it was very public. And it was, it was like my entire, my manager, my director, everybody knows exactly what happened to me. And so I was medically let go from work and was told you cannot return without a letter of medical clearance. I talked to an employment lawyer about that and they, they did agree. They basically said, if you are a medical professional, a bus driver, a police officer, any sort of job that basically has a burden of safety for the general public, you cannot be impaired in such a way that it can impact the way that you practice medicine. And so you are not allowed to come back until you get a letter of medical clearance. You have to be cleared. Same with driver's license, same with all the stuff like that, right? Yeah. And yeah. then I said, okay, well, then I'll apply for disability. And then they'll be like, but you're not disabled, so you can't have that. <laughs> and so I'm like, well, I can't work because I'm not allowed to legally. And I'm not disabled because you say that I'm not, even though all of my doctors say that I am. And they, the insurance company basically like hires these doctors to negate your claim. Yeah. They, they counter it without ever seeing you. They don't, they've never examined me as a patient. They've made a clinical decision and they've presented that to the insurance company. And so I kind of was like, all right, fine. My first rejection, you say that I'm able to work. I would like the doctor that you hired to write me a letter of medical clearance <laughs> so then I can go back to work. If he says that I can work, then have him write me one so I can go back. Yeah. Absolutely not. Of course. They would not give me that. They would not write that. So I've essentially disproven their exact claim because he refused to release me, but they still refused to pay. It's so that was insane. why. It's, it's so, but. it's absolutely infuriating. This whole system is infuriating. Did you see any benefit when you went on the mast cell protocol? I did see some benefit, yes. Like a lot of those, like those, um, hives and like my tongue would swell, like all, all of these like very classic, what people think of as, as allergic reactions, which is really just still like the histamine causing all of that. So it wasn't like I was allergic to anything. It was, it was literally just happening. Um, so I, the antihistamines helped with all of that stuff, but it hasn't helped with any of the, um, the, the movement disorder or yeah. the neurological pain or the contracture or anything like that. But I, I mean, I'll take it like the list of symptoms that it took off of my list. I'm happy to continue on it. And I'm, I, I and I do not want to stop it. That yeah. was one of the recommendations that when they were trying to prove or disprove whether I had mast cell disorder of any sort, they were, they recommended that I stop all of my antihistamines and all of my mast cell stabilizers and let all of my symptoms come back so they could prove that that was what I had. And I was like, no, thank you. That's a, that's a hard no. Like yeah. I, I like, even if you don't want to put that on as a diagnosis because you haven't tested it, I'm content to stay on my medications and not start that, that wheel over again, because that was miserable part of my life. I, I, I want to stay stable on the meds that I'm on. And it doesn't sound um, like that's the root cause because there's exactly. so many, there's so many disorders that can flare up your mast cells. 
Exactly. And it seems like it can just happen on its own. That's what we think is happening with me because of the benefit right. that I'm seeing where my neurological yeah. symptoms are getting better. It seems like oh, it seems I'm like so that. I'm so happy to hear that well, for you. thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm yeah. thrilled. It seems like that could be the root cause for me because of my reaction to the medication. But with you it sounds like, you know, with the demyelination in your spine too, exactly. I, there, there's something going on here that needs to be figured out. Um, yeah. You're making me think yeah. back through my journey and things that I have done. Um, there's two I haven't heard you talk about that I'm curious about. Have you had okay. full genome sequencing done? Okay, so that that brings me to my next point. I just got that, and 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 here is why. So the first time that they were worried about the Wilson's disease, they they ran one genetic test that's only for copper metabolism disorders. Okay. They also, also with like some of the connective tissue, I have hypermobile joints. There's all these other things that they were like, also like Ehlers-Danlos uh, you know, pops up a lot because yeah. there's, uh, there's they, that is associated with a whole list of symptoms, some of which overlaps with mine. Um, so then they also checked for um, the Ehlers-Danlos panel. And I came up again as a carrier for a subtype of Ehlers-Danlos that's called brittle cornea syndrome. And they said the same thing, that just because you have this carrier status doesn't mean that you have this disease state that, you know, that it's, 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 it's in there, but we don't think that it's affecting you. So however you want to take that. And I, and it's this, it's the, the problem of they run a test. It takes weeks to get the answers back and then a doctor's appointment to explain those answers. And you have waited three months and you have moved forward nowhere. Right. So I decided my own self to order the full because I was like, why are you doing these tests one by one? Right. You know, like like it takes this many weeks and then we get it back and it's negative. I just want to do a one and done. So I just signed up for that. So those results will will be coming back in the coming weeks. But one of the reasons that I specifically did that is that um, my naturopath came up with the concept of possibly these uh, porphyrias. Mm. And that's how you and I kind of connected yeah. because she porphyrias are a type of um, genetic disorder that impacts enzymes that are in your liver. And they, there's all these like intermediate steps that can start stacking up these, these intermediate metabolites that are toxic to your body. So she heard about it and it can cause, skin symptoms it can cause neurological symptoms there's different kinds um of porphyrias i think there's like 11 different kinds there's 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 a lot of different kinds um but she ordered the test for me um without really communicating me what the test was and 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 how you take it and and even with my background I really had never super heard of it. I knew that, that there were drug interactions with the disease state and it was really just a quick screening to make sure that there was no interactions about it, but I didn't have any knowledge of what the disease state was. Um, so they ordered that for me. You're supposed to get that testing done when you're in a flare. Mm. And I did not know that. And I showed up for some other routine labs and they ran it. Um, it happened to still be elevated, which is kind of rare. I mean, it's rare anyway, but the idea that, that I still somehow had these high levels of these compounds in my, in my urine um, without knowing why they were there. 
And so that started me down this whole different journey where I started learning about all of those different disease states and how they impact people. And I, and none of my doctors had even really were comfortable with it. There's one specialist in the entire um, area that, that knows more about it, but you can't get into them unless you have a definitive diagnosis. And so my doctor, not really knowing what the deal was with it, I did my own research and I found the American Porphyria Foundation, which was extremely helpful. Those folks there, um, they understand that it's a rare disease state. They understand that there's a huge block in knowledge. They set me up with a, a doctor information packet where they were able to send a link to my doctor. These are the labs. These are how you order these labs. These are the false positives that you could possibly do. And they also offer free genetic testing. So that was a huge find for me. I I forwarded that information on to every doctor I could get my mitts on because I was all like, you need to be aware that these things occur. You need to be aware that these things are happening. This is how you test for it. There's free services out there. They did a quick medical screening over the phone for me and just determined that I was eligible for the testing. And ultimately, the, that genetic testing came back negative as well. However, that still then puts me in the position that I am currently in, which is if you don't have this genetic disorder, why are these compounds elevated in your body? Yeah. And it all kind of does keep kind of like link back to liver. Because once your liver gets really stressed, those that metabolism cannot take place in the way that it can. And the way that I've able to describe it to people is, um, is through things that they're familiar with. And hangovers are actually like one of the things I'm like, so you know how you drink alcohol and your liver has to metabolize that alcohol, but if you drink too fast and you overwhelm the system, you end up getting really drunk and then you get a hangover. Okay, that's what my body's doing to me every single day yeah. without alcohol because I completely, anything, anything that I thought was going to be negative to my health, I have not had a drink since May of 2021 because I already had like seizure disorder, alcohol lowers your seizure threshold. They can interact with medications. I'm just going to cut that out of my life. Like I'm not going to add anything more for my body to be able to do. And that's a personal choice for anybody and everybody. And again, I have, I have no, there's no judgment in me. Like if people are like, yeah, I'm just trying to also like live my life because that's fun to do. Right. So, but I also was like taking that out of the equation because that's just one more thing for a doctor to be able to say, well, if you, if you did, if you did, if you did, if you only meditated, then you would be better. If you only did this, then you would be better. And that is not the case. right? <laughs> yeah. So, but I'm just trying to take away any ammunition that anybody has to like shut down. You have to, my yeah, I've done the same yeah. thing. We all have to. Um, and the other thing I was thinking about, so, my doctor, one of the things she found was that I had elevated arsenic. So she sent me to occupational medicine and they oh. talked to me about my entire life. Like, when have you ever been around? Long-term exposures yeah, and things like that. Long-term exposures, toxins, anything like that. Um, and they determined that the arsenic in my urine was organic arsenic and normal for someone who eats like nothing but vegetables, <laughs> which is my diet. So that wasn't it wasn't like a, a health concern, but but they were so incredibly thorough, um, and that makes me think of one other thing I, I I did, which is that my doctor ran a whole bunch of infectious disease stuff, um, and I tested positive for cystocercosis, which ended up being a false positive. But you okay. mentioned that you like traveled all over the world, and there were yeah. all sorts of like 
viruses and bacteria oh, yeah. and parasites that you can pick up yes. that can do all sorts of wreak all sorts of havoc on the body. Correct. Yeah. And so the natural path did check for some parasites. Like, and I, I also got like, um, cell staining done of my, um, uh, um, Oh, so I think, um, symptoms. I might be having, um, sorry. Oh, it's okay. I can see in your face something that feels very familiar to me. So, yeah. I totally get it. Yeah, I might, I might. Oh, uh, sorry. It's totally okay. You have nothing to apologize for. This happens. This has happened to me so many times. Uh, we can absolutely yeah. pause, take a break. I think I'm pulling it together. I just had okay. a moment, like where, it, where, where, where. It's okay. I can see it in your face, you, and yeah. I, I see it, and I recognize it because I've felt it many times. Yeah. That feeling um, where you're trying to get words out and all of a sudden the connections between your brain and your mouth are severed and you're just trying to speak, but nothing's coming. And there's like yeah. thoughts there. You start to twitch. I, you know, I, this is very familiar to me. Yeah. All right. I'm getting it. I'm getting it together. Um, my spinal tap. So yeah. they, uh, they, they did run, um, like, a, like looking at cells and, you know, making sure that there wasn't like a parasite or, you know what I mean? Good. Something, something going on. But do I think that that was complete and thorough enough, thorough enough? Like, likely not, likely yeah. not. So I, I do like, there are still avenues that I think that, that need to be pursued. Yeah. Obviously I got tested for Lyme disease. I got tested for, you know, all, a, a, a lot of different things that, that were, that were all ruled out. So Basically, where I am at right now is that my wonderful neurologist has left the medical system. Mm. So I am essentially um, rebuilding my care team as we speak. I am interviewing with doctors and seeing if they will accept me as a patient currently. And, and that's why I am still undiagnosed. Yeah. Well, I think you are going to figure it out. I feel oh, I like will. there are so many yeah. threads to pull on yeah. and you are, yeah. you know, very actively I'm, going about I'm this. pulling those threads. Yeah. yeah, I am. I am with every, I think about the whole, how complex all of this is. And there are some people whose literal only job is to set up scheduling and appointments and organize things like that. And I am attempting to do that for myself while also being profoundly ill. Yeah. Right. Like, like coordinating between subspecialties and doctors and, and labs get forgotten and things get dropped and, and like nobody ever scheduled your follow-up or nobody even calls you for the follow-up or a referral gets <laughs> oh, no. canceled or, yeah. you know, like all of those things just keep happening over and over again. And I'm like working through that and, and I cannot give a bigger shout out to my friends and family who have just stepped up like around me in, in every way. Like I am getting emotional talking about it just because it's like my, like so grateful for, for everyone that has, that has helped with that. Like the, the day-to-day -day care, like my, my person who I, who like 
literally took me into his home and, and has completely helped me with like so many things like that. It's been completely priceless. My family here and in multiple different states, like, like I, I cannot, I cannot thank, thank my, everybody who they are. They know who they are. And I thank them profoundly, but like without them, um, I, I don't think I would be, I mean, maybe not even be alive. Like I don't, I don't even, you know, I can't, I can't even thank them enough. I, I know what you mean. I, the people that help get us through this are incredible and the people that love us no matter what state we're in and yeah. accept the fact that we will not always be in our best state and maybe yeah. very often won't be in our best state. Most um, of the time we are not in our best state. And yeah. I think that that, that is also one of the things that does make me really sad. Like there's so much untapped potential in all of us that are suffering in these ways that like, the questioning of our self-worth and all of those things that go on, I, I, I wish that we could look at ourselves in the same way that the people who love us look at us hmm. because we would, we would never be so unkind to a loved one as we are to ourselves. <laughs> those are very wise words. I totally agree. Um, well, I, I, I know there's so much more to your story and I I actually, there's a few things that I want to talk to you about off mic um, after we sure. wrap up. So, I definitely want to leave some time for that. But before we finish recording, I have to ask you my favorite question. So, if you could go back in time and bring yourself a message on that night where you went to the ER right after yeah. your first shift and your whole life completely flipped upside down, if you could yes. give yourself one piece of information that might be helpful, what do you think it would be? Yeah, I... I would advise myself to listen to yourself, believe in yourself and advocate for yourself and do not underestimate the challenges that you are going to face because they are, they are big, they are mighty. Um, and I feel like I would not have what I, what is now, I feel wasted time. Like the idea of answering a doctor, honestly, and remembering that you don't have to quote unquote, be polite is something that, that we talked about earlier. Underestimating your minimizing things, brushing them aside. Do not do that. Stand in your truth. And they may be ugly truths. And sometimes we don't even want to admit those to ourselves. It's hard to report symptoms to a doctor that we don't want to admit to ourselves that they're having. Mm. And I know I wasted a lot of time minimizing and being polite and trying to not be problematic and not be a burden, like wipe all that away and just advocate for yourself as much as possible and the truth in a truthful way. It's so important. Yeah. The first thing, right when we hopped on this zoom call, before we started recording, I asked how you're doing today and you know, that got us into a conversation about the fact that, like, we're, societally, we're programmed to say, oh, I'm good, even when you're awful. And right. when a doctor asks you how you're doing, if you say, oh, I'm good, how are you? They'll put that in your chart, and it will work against you. It's happened to me. Right. Like, I yeah. I got off an appointment with a gastroenterologist where I was, like, 
you know, at the height of my symptoms, absolutely miserable, twitching uncontrollably during the whole appointment, um, just desperate for some help. And I looked at the the notes after and he says, yeah, this patient is having all these issues, but reports being mostly fine. Or like I asked how he's doing today and he said, oh, I'm doing okay. Or something like that. I'm like, that's not, that's not what I, I mean, maybe those are the words that left my mouth, but that's not what I said. You know, that was not your intention. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, I I think that like learning effective communication is something that I'm still working on. I'm a talker. I get off topic. I embellish. (laughs) We go down avenues, like learning to be an effective communicator, I, I think is probably our, our one of the best tools that you can have in your toolbox. And, and again, I'm still working on that, but, but yeah, like radical honesty is not always the very best thing, but we need to be able to, to let the people who need to know exactly what's actually going on. Yeah. So important. And I will say that as far as your communication goes, you did a really incredible job today. (laughs) Absolutely riveting. Yeah. I mean, wow. What an incredible episode of the podcast. And I relate so much to so much of what you're saying. There's definitely differences. You know, there's there's things yeah. in your story. I feel like I feel like it's unlikely that we have the same thing, but whatever it is is so incredibly similar and it's so similar. and has brought us down like similar paths. And even similar yeah. potential diagnoses. And it's Correct. really, it's like almost chilling for me to hear someone else say words that I have said yeah. over yeah. and over. Your, your thoughts and feelings coming out of somebody else's mouth can be both terrifying and empowering. Exactly. And that's that's how this has felt for me, for sure. Um, you know, terrifying to kind of think back through some of the experiences I've had, but so empowering to know that I am not alone. Other people are experiencing what I'm experiencing. I'm talking to one of them right now. Um, yeah. And I can tell you from my experience, like I finally found good care. I found the right doctors. I am doing yeah. better and it has been holding for months now and I'm still flaring up if I push too hard. I'm still have right. to like be so careful and vigilant about what I eat and taking multiple yeah. medications multiple times per day. Um, right. And it's it's a lot of work, but I'm I'm getting into a groove that is productive and um, and that's possible for you too. I, I really feel that. Um, and I feel yeah, like a diagnosis I, is in your future. I, 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 I have this sense that there's enough pieces here that if we can find the right person who cares, um, that, that, they'll that can put be them done. all together and we can get it figured out. I, yeah. I agree with that too. And I'm, I'm hoping that like that full genome sequencing, maybe that will open up some doors. There's, there's definitely, there's, there's definitely work to be done and is, much as I'm able to do it on a day-to-day basis, I will continue to do that work. Some days you backslide and you don't get anything done or you fall into old patterns. And then some days you make great strides and being patient with yourself and kind to yourself during this entire journey is, is the only thing that we can do and to continue to go on. Well said. Courtney, tell us where we can connect with you online if people want to follow you on social media or anything at all that you'd like to plug. What I would like to post about is is the the people and the places that I have gone to heal. So um, my sister owns a campground in um, Savannah, Illinois, that's called Spring Lake Campground. And it is a sanctuary. Mm. It is has been so pivotal and in like healing the places, healing in places that are natural and beautiful and calming and they are 
not, they are unplugged. They, they don't have like Wi-Fi everywhere. It is on the Mississippi river on a lake. There's a bike path. It is, it is like going to a small quiet place and feeling all of the feelings that you have and, and like their motto is let this be your sanctuary. And, and it has over, over and again, proven itself to where my, my loss of independence has been one of my biggest struggles. And part of my family support system was like putting in places, allowing me to go to that campground um, and have eyes on me to do things that I previously did. I, I'm an adventurous person, like hiking, you know, miles out into the wilderness and camping by myself. Well, I obviously can't do that anymore, but I can sit on a paddleboard in full view of the shore in shallow water, knowing that if something happened, my family would come and get me. It gives me that feeling of independence while also having an infrastructure. They put a place for me to rest, like put a, a bed in the back room. So when I'm clocked out and I'm done for the day, I can still be present and I can still be around, but I have a quiet, safe place to rest when I need to. These are the things that I'm profoundly grateful for. And if you're in need of that, Spring Lake Campground can provide that. Amazing. Wow. That sounds incredible. Um, I am so grateful for you coming on the show and for choosing this as the platform to share your story. I'm truly honored to, to feature your story here. I think it's really important. And I also hope that Maybe there's someone out there listening who has some ideas. And if you're listening... I would love that. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> one of the reasons that I started putting myself out there. Like, I, I, I realized that you, you need to, like, honor your needs and protect yourself. And, like, if you're vulnerable and you, and you need to have a wall up for a short time, that's okay. But we can't live behind walls because we need our connections with our people. Yeah. We need to be able to comfortably ask and receive help. We, we will all of us do better with the more connections and communication you have. So this is, this is part of my journey. I'm, I'm putting myself out there. I'm, I'm airing my vulnerabilities and I am, I am actively asking for help and, and sharing my story because in helping others in acts of service, that is also a place to heal. So I, I'm hoping that my story can help someone, but I'm also hoping that my questions can also prompt help. It's a give and it's a take. And, and that's part of what I'm trying to learn and to implement in my life. Yeah, yeah. Well, if anyone's listening and has ideas, please email me, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. I will forward anything on to Courtney that, uh, that I think can be helpful. And I, I would love to help facilitate that. Um, so incredible job today. I, I, ha I have a couple more things, like I said, that I really want to talk to you off mic. So let's wrap this up. But you, couldn't, okay. you could not have done a better job today. I'm thrilled with, so with this interview. I cannot wait to share this. And I'm, I, I really feel what you're going through. Um, and I empathize with it. And I hate that you have to go through this. But yeah. I know that you are also learning some really valuable lessons about yes. about how to exist and be happy and you're fighting so hard and you're doing a really good job you know what you're doing is so hard and you're doing great <laughs> thank you i am i need to hear that 
And I also need to be good at like accepting, like hearing that about myself and believing it about myself. Yeah. Like, like the whole thing, I kept saying, well, I'm trying to navigate this. I'm trying to be able to survive this. And it was pointed out to me by like one of my therapists, like they're like, you're not trying, you're doing. Yeah. You, you, you actually are like you completed today's task. That's not attempting it. That's completing it. You did it. You didn't do it perfectly. No one's ever going to do everything perfectly. Stop saying that you're trying, you're doing. And, and I found that particularly empowering. That's some Yoda wisdom right there. Do or do not. I know. And that's what I said. It was one of those things where I was like, I am kind of a nerd. And then I was all like, is that really what he meant with there is no try? There's only do. Like, I thought that that meant there's my, my old self thought that that meant that there's no room for failure. Like, I, I took that as a negative that there's like, there's no try. There's only do. And I was like, oh, so if you can't complete it then you shouldn't even attempt it there's no trying you can only be successful and then i realized that it's like no it's that in the attempt you are successful hmm. you are trying and therefore you are doing and it completely like flipped that on its head for me and i took something that previously felt like maybe a, like a negative like if you're not successful then it's not worth doing and i was like no just in attempting it you are being successful and it felt so much better. I love that. And I am the biggest nerd. So I love that that's how we're going to wrap this up today. <laughs> uh, but Courtney, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. I really, really appreciate your time and you sharing your story. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Brooke Walters Schmidt, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Danielle Signorelli, Alexandria Henderson, Justin Minnick, Heather Muncie, and Robert, and our $25 per month producers Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at Patreon.com dot com slash major pain podcast.